The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. And welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other. Next week, I'm going to be chatting with Kojo Karam about the stranger law that a hard Brexit and trading on WTO terms holds for the Tory Brexit ultras. But today, in the second episode of Red Hacks, a series of conversations on journalism in the neoliberal world, Joanna Ramiro speaks to campaigning photojournalist Jess Hurd. Welcome again to Red Hacks, a series of conversations about journalism, socialism, and being a journalist in a neoliberal world. My name is Joanna Romero, and in the next few weeks, I'll be chatting to a series of left-wing reporters, photographers, writers, and editors about how it feels to be a journalist in our turbulent times, particularly if you don't subscribe to the views of Rupert Murdoch's The Sun, but don't quite stand for Catherine Viner's Guardian either. As usual, we are recording in a pub in South London, so it should be relatively quiet, but if you hear any odd sounds, don't worry about that. That's just us having a jolly good time. Today's guest is a renowned photojournalist, published in newspapers and magazines worldwide. You might have seen her work in The Guardian or The Mirror, or even Germany's Süddeutsche Zeitung or the French Lops. She's also one of the founders of the I'm a Photographer, Not a Terrorist campaign, which has fought tooth and nail to remove photographers from Scotland Yard's domestic extremist database. Jess Heard, it is an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Welcome. Oh, thank you very much. So we'll start off where I usually quite like to start off, which is with uh, our own experiences in the world of journalism. So let me, or let our listeners really know how your love for uh, uh, photography uh, started at and how it took you to photojournalism? Um, well, I started off, I guess, um, at art college. So I was doing fine art. I wanted to be a painter. Uh, I went to art college in Birmingham, where I grew up. Uh, and that year, that year, that foundation year, it was brilliant. Just a stunning uh, art course, um, really expanded everyone's outlook on life uh, there was a lot of things going on politically in Birmingham there was a, a lot of activity around uh, anti-racism uh, there was a, a peak of uh, activity of the far right then um, and I got quite political around that so I spent the first half of the year learning <coughs> how to apply myself and then subverting it in the second half uh, at art college um, and then I came down to, to London and to do a fine art degree uh, and very quickly, well, I was very politically active at college and various campaigns, but uh, realised that painting probably wasn't the most immediate way to get your message across to people. Started doing more photography on uh, on protests and um, and was very involved uh, in 
cam anti-racist campaigns. So the, uh, there was a big protest uh, down in Welling, uh, not not so far from here, I guess, um, uh, to close down the, the BNP bookshop, uh, their headquarters at the time. And uh, we reckon that from our small art site, 90% of the students went went on this protest, um, which was which was just crazy. At the time, it was a kind of ambush situation uh, where we got to a dead end, police then battered people. Um, and I think for anyone involved in that, uh, that's changed your perception of a, of a lot of things. Uh, a lot of people went home with a lot of bruises and we had campaigns to defend students who were, who were caught up in that. So yeah, I, I did a, a piece for the student magazine then, uh, a kind of feature piece with photos and, and my eyewitness account. Um, and that really laid the path for what came after. So you felt like it ignited some sort of passion, fire in you for, for photojournalism at that point? Yeah, that you're, you're actually there to document um, injustice, things that are happening immediately in front of you. Uh, unfortunately, you, you know, you do get caught up in it. Uh, the police had a, a horse charge into the protesters and some people tried to drag me up a, a wall and, uh, and the police dragged me down. I had the, the biggest bruise I've ever had from my fingertips to my toes. Um, so, you know, as a, a teenager at that point, you know, that is, that is going to stay with you, that is going to impact on you. Um, How, I mean, you, you then, I guess, but please do tell us about, about that process, become increasingly professionalised. I really wanted to hear about how it felt being a photojournalist, a woman photojournalist in particular, at that point in time, an incredibly political point in time as well. I mean, what, one could say that about today as well, yeah. uh, but, but certainly then. Um, and as you were involved, clearly personally as well, to a degree with it. Um, yeah, t tell us a little bit about, you know, the 90s and, and becoming professionalized in, 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 that, in that period of time. And how it felt being a professional photojournalist and a woman as well, whether that made any difference. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, there were a lot of very, um, uh, very political women around at that point. I don't think I particularly had a, any, there weren't particularly any women photographers that I was looking to. I was just very much involved in the movements and documenting the movements, um, being active at college. Um, I, was, I did also did sociology, so we ended up having to defend the sociology courses from being axed and uh, defending jobs on our sites and things, had occupations and, and various things which, um, which you really grow through. Um, and I think people really found, certainly I've spoken to people quite recently who were involved in that and they said it completely changed their, their outlook. So, I mean, I think, college was was really important um i just yeah spent a lot of time just going out and uh, and photographing i documented a uh, traveler site at the back of college uh, there was quite a lot of tension uh, anything that was nicked was blamed on the travelers and so on um and but went in and interviewed the kids and talked about uh what uh what was happening to them and the racism they were experiencing at school uh, through the council um, and um, and the policing, uh, and and that was that was really what also uh, helped me in in terms of uh, finding a path through to photojournalism. Really, that you could get actually get access and go in and tell people's stories, help assist people tell their own stories. Actually, uh, I did recorded interviews with all the kids, so you could. Uh, see their big portraits on the wall and listen to their 
and listen to their interviews, their words. Um, and I think that's 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 really uh, that's a really p- still a powerful way uh, to to break the news out. So, mm. what was the reception as well? I mean, the other side of the question of how you go into anything within journalism is really where do you get published? Um, how was it at the time to find your work exhibited, published? Mm-hmm actually accessing the public that that, that that you want. I mean, that is fundam- that is the fundamental relationship within journalism is to have an audience. Well, I was very lucky that the day after I um, left college, I started work on a left-wing paper. So I did that for five and a half years. And, uh, you know, that was a great education, mm. you know, just being dropped into, as you will know, mm. dropped into crazy situations and having to work out how to operate, how to talk mm. to people, how to engage with people. Um, I remember... Uh, covering Oven Dagenham uh, at the Ford plant, I uh, got snuck in, and uh, uh, Tony Woodley, uh, organizer at the time, TNG organizer, into the factory to photograph a mass meeting there. And I was the only photographer to photograph the walkout against racism on the assembly line. You know, this is a really privileged. I felt really privileged, and um, and I, I learned an awful lot in that condensed time as to how to operate and to how to how to be with people and how to how to tell their stories so as you start seeing your work getting published more in in sort of mainstream outlets do you feel there is an attempt to direct it in a certain direction by picture editors or picture desks um or actually do you feel still quite in control of what you were putting out yeah I mean very early on um, I started contributing to a left-wing uh, library, image library called report digital so the ethos there was to not to work with the right-wing press uh, so we were very very careful where our images go out and that when you sign up to the library you sign up to the captions we we give the images so it uh, attempts to uh, tackle that issue of distortion in the media or um, sensationalising or, or whatever uh, editorial position they want to put on the image uh, that it actually stands true so that was very important for me and still is very important for me uh, that I'm in, con- in some way in control of that process rather than just throwing it into the <laughs> uh, Google search or whatever that people do um, do respect the images and a lot of them are very sensitive that I take you know whether it be refugees or mm. um, or travellers or you know in situations where it can be played to a certain rhetoric yeah, yeah fair enough um, well that, that leads quite quite neatly into the sort of progression of, of journalism I guess in the last decade or so um, because obviously one of the main concerns for, for both our listeners, but I suspect in general sidecast today, is a question of fake news, the misuse of, of information that often uh, uh, journalists put out there, you know, with good intentions, but then it gets warped. And particularly with, with imagery, that's, that's relatively easy to do. Um, on top of that, I suspect, although these are almost two questions, so I might have to ask this again in a bit, um, you see an increase um, in, in easy access to, to uh, technology that can produce imagery, um, not only by the advent of the smartphone, of course, but also by just the cheapening of, of 
cameras and and so on um which obviously makes the the whole arena in which you work far more competitive but again as said also possibly more prone to 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 exploitation by um editorial lines that that we might not support um so if you tell me a little bit how your experience has been with that and particularly because you've been working since the 90s how you saw that progress no i mean i started out in the dark room so <laughs> that's how far it has come um, what was what was really useful at the time was when I went freelance that I hit a kind of curve of, uh, of the technology uh, advances so going digital at that time was was great for me because I was covering um, different situations across the world so to have that freedom to be able to go go out you know a lot of people stayed analog because uh, they felt that was better uh, image wise I was just like you know bring it on we can, yeah i can i can i can travel i can send images back uh document um social movements across the world as i did the world social forums uh in caracas and uh mumbai uh various other places uh which which was all which was all great but yes it comes with other situations so you know you've got whole You've got many, many more images out there now for people to use and people to, to buy. There's a whole competing forces of uh, a price drop in images, which may, makes our jobs unsustainable, in my opinion. You know, when people are uh, going to buy from these uh, bottom feeding agencies, uh, it, is, it is a real problem because it takes out the, the prof- professionals. How, how do you feel that that can be addressed or how do you feel that you have even in your experience, addressed it and combat that? Well, I mean, people will need to think when, when they are uh, licensing images uh, or video or, or whatever else, where they're getting it from, you know, what are the sources. Uh, if you want to fund uh, decent journalism and ethical journalism, then you're going to have to pay, I'm afraid, you know, because we need to eat. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because obviously you, you've already talked about Report Digital, which clearly creates a filter through which uh, uh, journalism can be done better effectively. Um, what other ways could you, I mean, would you advise your younger colleagues, for instance, to to join uh, similar agencies or Report Digital for that matter? Would you advise them to, to not sell their, their content at any any price to any to any uh, a bidder. Um, what what kind of I mean, I think sometimes what I what I try to do through these conversations is to give um, to paint a picture both for younger colleagues but also to an audience of the sort of obstacles that anyone with I would say with just a spine within within the industry finds himself confronted with and 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 that is. Particularly, I would say, I mean, you, you can see it as a, as a, a writer, um, but you certainly see it, I suspect, as as a, a, a videographer or as a photojournalist. Mm. Um, so what kind of no, advice, uh, po- political advice, effectively, this, this almost would be? Well, I mean, in a sense, it's trade union advice. You know, we should be sticking together here. And I always point people to the NUJ Recommended Rates Guide uh, because it's a very useful pitch. If you're thinking of selling your work for 20 quid and the <laughs> rates guide says actually this is 180 or whatever it may be uh, then then you've got a problem because not only are you end undervaluing yourself you're devaluing the industry mm. and uh, running everyone else out of business so it's not sustainable for you it's not sustainable for anyone else so uh, basically upping the rates always finding out uh, what a colleague in a similar situation would would charge I think is is really useful and 
and pegging it that way. So the, the other attack on, on photojournalists and videographers uh, in our time comes from perhaps, although to us perhaps not so surprising uh, a source, the state. Um, in February 2008, the Metropolitan Police launched an anti-terrorist campaign targeting people taking pictures that might, as they called it, uh, seem odd. I'm putting the air commas here. Um, the policy was so obscure that it gave plenty of room to abuse of powers by the police, particularly against um, those covering uh, politicized events. Um, you were very involved in a fight back against this. So tell us a little bit about the inception of I'm a photographer, not a terrorist campaign. And uh, yeah, your own experience, your learning curves through it. Yeah, I mean, we suddenly began to realize our colleagues were being stopped under the Prevention of Terror ter Terrorism Powers, uh, Section 44 in particular, uh, but also actually Section 43. Uh, one colleague, um, my partner Jason Parkinson, video journalist, he was stopped 23 times. Uh, he had stop and search forms 23 times in one year, uh, either going to a protest to cover it or, or leaving a protest, which is just uh, obviously impeding our ability to work, uh, but also a misuse, as we saw it, of, of policing and policing powers. So we did start a campaign with the NUJ uh, under the leadership of Jeremy Deere at the time, which was uh, very good. Former General Secretary. Former General Secretary. And he had a, a lone protest outside uh, Scotland Yard uh, defending, defending our rights which was great. We started the campaign group, I'm a photographer, not a terrorist. I mean, people were being stopped for bizarre things like photographing owls in, in Manchester city centre. There was a uh, situation where someone was photographing a, a fish and chip shop and stopped. Uh, also, um, St Paul's Cathedral, I was stopped covering a wedding, okay. <laughs> uh, a traveller wedding uh, in the London Docklands uh, that I could be doing somehow hostile reconnaissance because I was in the vicinity of City Airport, even though, right. you know, I came out. Often at traveller weddings, the police are called for one reason or other. Yeah. Uh, so I went out to document the police in the car park. Yeah. Uh, and I was just doing, you know, set up a tripod, panned over to the... Uh, a police car a couple of times to make sure I got it um, and then I was you know accosted, <laughs> accosted by uh, three police officers told to stop recording uh, they actually took my camera off me uh, it's you know it's dark it was a very uh, tense situation and actually they documented me as um, as being stopped under section 43 which is a significantly increased mm. power uh, they actually did think I was a terrorist, even though I was very clearly uh, all my camera kit and so on at this, and a reason for being there. Uh, so anyway, we, we challenged that. Um, in fact, Section 43 was challenged in the European Court uh, and um, considered unlawful when it's used now. So that was a great success. Uh, the campaign has also tackled situations where... Um, you might have a public space, but no uh, no right to photograph in it. Uh, so all the privatisation of public space, mm. effectively, so around uh, um, uh, the mayor's office, um, city hall, and so on. That's all private land. So if you start photographing there, you can get into trouble for that, uh, which we don't think is right. Similarly, Westfield Shopping Centre, it was in initially uh, discussed as a public uh, thoroughfare, uh, between stations, uh, but if you take a camera out there, you're jumped upon by uh, Westfield security. Uh, I 
didn't know that. That's Give it a go. <laughs> <laughs> Try next time. A test for any for any journalist to. Uh, so, in fact, Ken Livingston, who who did negotiate uh, under the GLA, I believe, uh, that development, he was uh, being interviewed not so long back in Westfield and is accosted uh, by and uh, manhandled by the security. I mean, it's a great piece of piece of film which illustrates very very eloquently what the problem what the problem is but people won't necessarily know the general public won't necessarily know that they're right you know if uh, whatever we may be photographing or filming there uh, being curtailed I mean when you hear the police come out and say you know people shouldn't be documenting us when we're making arrests mm. uh, this is you know we have a huge democratization of the media you know, everyone has the ability to be a journalist. You know, everyone can get their phone out, record, document mm. something. Uh, and it's very powerful. Uh, it's been very powerful in the Black Lives Matter mm. movement. It's been very powerful here. And I think curtailing the space in which we can do that yeah. uh, is really important for the state and the powers that be. I mean, this is, this is the counterpoint to the, the discussion we just had a little while ago about the, the deprofessionalization of... of photography, photojournalism, through the easy access is also that you find a democratization when, you know, we, we put our political hats on and on top of our journalist hats, I guess, um, it, because, because you know, in terms of, of civil rights uh, campaigning, mm. it just becomes easier to access the information and the data and the evidence, of, effectively, um, of things like this. So all of a sudden you might have someone who's not a photographer filming you being arrested for instance or being stopped and searched uh, and how the how do you feel about that change of power dynamic particularly for someone who as you said started off in, in the dark room no I mean of course welcome that uh, but if your images are published or you're approached you should charge the rate you know and we, we, we do try and get <coughs> through the NEJ and, and other organizations that message out that you know your content is worth something for these people and even if you give it to charity or whatever you should be charging for it you know the the amount of free content out there and that mm. people don't realize um it, it's it's just not right people should be going after that so okay so to bring it back to to the uh, i'm a photographer not a terrorist campaign um i mean tell us about the campaign itself how it was received how it was uh, uh, suppressed at times or, or combated by the state uh, and, and what you've learned through the process of, of suddenly, because you became quite prominent within it, you were speaking very publicly obviously about it, um, you and, and your partner Jason and a few other colleagues very dear to us who work in very similar circles were part of, of or we found out were part of that, those lists of people whose um, data was being collected by the Metropolitan Police. Um, Tell us how you felt about all that. I mean, I, I'm not going to expect you to have been incredibly surprised that your information was being collected, but it still it still affects one's sort of psyche, I guess, when we find out that we're in, under such surveillance. Yeah, I mean, the campaign was really powerful, and uh, I think people just found it perverse and bizarre that uh, that we were having to have this campaign mm -hmm. um, first and foremost. Uh, you know, and that was criminalising amateur photographers as much as professional photographers, and that we uh, we really needed to do something about it, and 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 we did. And you know, we got uh, thousands of photographers into Trafalgar Square. We had a flash mob at Canary Wharf, uh, where no security turned up, bizarrely. Uh, 
who, if you do go to Canary Wharf, they are strange. The security officers are strangely dressed as police, you know, with the little checkers and and everything. It's a it's a weird space. Um, it's definitely a weird space. <laughs> Um, so, yeah, I mean, that campaign led on to, as you say, this uh, realising that we were being, that we were under surveillance and that we were part of a domestic extremist database uh, for largely working in the human rights area, uh, civil rights and so on, and that we needed to take it on, really. And I think probably Mark Thomas led this, uh, who's comedian and journalist uh, and whereby we've had we've got a joint campaign with the NUJ uh, to get our get our data removed. This January, so very recent development, uh, the European Court of Human Rights ruled in favour of a peace campaigner who demanded that his details were removed from uh, the police's domestic extremist uh, database. Um, I'm going to guess this gave your campaign quite a bit of hope. Uh, so what are the next steps and, uh, and what, what can other journalists and obviously the public do to support you, at, you know, in 2019? So, yeah, that, we absolutely welcome the, the judgment. That was great for John Catt, who's, who's 94-year-old, mm-hmm. uh, went along to uh, protest peacefully with his daughter. He'd Dangerous to the nation, clearly. He'd often paint on these demonstrations, you know, paint the other protesters. Yeah, clearly an enemy of the state. Um, he, no, it's great that he's, he's won this victory uh, and that they have to delete everything to do with them on, on their databases because uh, it's not just a domestic extremist database they keep changing the name so mm. you have to keep up with that um, so yeah we welcome we welcome that our, our lawyer um, Sharmit Dutta is going to be contacting the police to ask them what they are going to do now in relation uh, to uh, information stored on journalists so that's where we are with that and what can can we do uh, in order to support you through that process, is there is there do you just effectively at this stage just need the campaign to remain visible, or or is there anything else that that needs to be done? Do do, do you need would parallel campaigns by um, other kinds of journalists be be very helpful? I mean, obviously well, exactly, we talked about what the NUJ has done, but I mean at the time, I mean this is cases I think three years old now. So at the time it went global. Actually, people were amazed that um, the police wasted their time on on uh, collecting this kind of data and the surveillance state so it went everywhere japan australia you know the states uh it was a bit crazy having lots of different uh, crews in your living room <laughs> interviewing you uh so there's not a lot to be done. I mean, obviously, we, we uh, dovetail with other campaigns like the blacklisting campaign and the police spying campaign. Mm-hmm. There are other, yeah. there are other um, elements going on right now. So um, basically, yeah, I mean, if you, if you can write about it, if you can have it, uh, promote it in your um, magazines and what have you, blogs, that'd be great. Because one of the things you, you've said a couple of times as we talked about the campaign is how people were almost shocked that such a campaign had to be had to be initiated um, yet I'm thinking of how in the last let's say at least five years uh, the, the my feeling has been that the, per- the public perception of the journalist has deteriorated quite severely in countries that otherwise would be 
a damage on free speech and on, on, on freedom of press. Um, how do you feel this has affected you personally as a professional, uh, potentially the campaign, but in general journalism really? I mean, it's made it very uncomfortable to work in some situations where you're either being, you know, attacked for being mainstream media or attacked for being fake news. There's a can be in situations a general hostility just because you're there. Mm. <laughs> Whereas before, um, you would be welcomed and thanked for turning up. You know, oh great, you know, a journalist is here. Like we're going to get some coverage, you know, yeah. or, or what have you. Um, I mean, particularly if you work in, in in communities that would be more sensitive, understandably so, because yeah. they're tendentially targeted by the right-wing press in particular. I mean, I think also uh, the GDPR legislation hasn't helped, you know, whereby people are more concerned about their data in that way. Mm. You know, obviously we're campaigning about the state holding our data, but it's uh, it, it pervades everything. Mm. Uh, so people are, are more worried about how they're, and quite rightly in some respects, mm how they're going to be portrayed. Uh, so you actually do have to, I think, talk for a lot longer <laughs> in situations. But, you know, other situations you're also um, uh, pushed out of or can be. You know, I remember around the climate camp, uh, various climate camps that happened, there was a restriction on media. So the media would have an hour or something, mm. media hour, um, which restricts everyone except the people that go in under the radar, mm. which are mostly the right-wing press, mm. who then get the stories, you know? Mm. So you're actually restricting the very people who are gonna write or photograph or document the best stories, you know? In your, uh, as per your, whatever your campaign is. Mm. Uh, so that can be, that's, that's been quite, quite a challenge. Do you feel it has affected your work? And I'm here I'm not just talking about you being able to work, but the kind of things you, you, you feel interested by, you end up ph photographing, you end up going to, do you feel it has affected, has it made you question at times whether to, to work on a certain assignment or not? I mean, from, yeah, the, 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 the squeeze from both sides affects you. So, I mean, around the time of the campaigning, uh, height of the campaigning, I'm a photographer, not a terrorist. So if you saw uh, the police abusing someone, if you were going to document that, it went through your head. I'm going to get arrested or I'm going to get caught up in this, you know, I'm on the way to a job. Do you know what I mean? You can't just document, show your press card and you're off. Mm. Uh, the, the worry was, yeah, so that, that curtails your ability to, to photograph the world around you. Uh, similarly, yeah, if you're going to get hostility on, on something, uh, it has an impact. You know, we're human beings. <laughs> You've covered some quite historic events in the last 10 years alone. I mean, I'm just using this as a sort of parallel to my own experience because I've, uh, I don't know if we've ever talked about it, but I've certainly talked to Jason about events that we kind of nearly were in the same space but just didn't bump into each other. Um, how do you feel these, these recent world developments have shaped you as, as a person? Through your work, ended up shaping you as a person. Well, I mean, anything I go on, I've got a passion for that. So anything that any story I go cover, I, you know, as a freelancer, I'm generally funding myself to go to these places. Uh, so you have to be really clear that you want to cover it. So yeah, whether it be the Arab Spring or uh, Gezi Park, Istanbul. Mm. Actually, we, we 
we spent a lot of time bumping into Paul Mason <laughs> in various different places. There's there uh, a red hack trail here going on in Greece and so on. Uh, yeah, and returning to cover uh, to cover things that were happening around the financial crisis. Um, I mean, the last ten years has been intense for the stories I've covered. Um, you know, whether it be uh, covering Mohammed Mahmoud Street in in Cairo, you know, Sniper Alley, um, seeing people macheted in front of you, uh, being sexually assaulted, um, you know, all these within the context of, uh, of an uprising which you support uh, and uh, and wanted to succeed, quite desperately wanted it to succeed, you know. I'd been to Egypt before and um, and covered peace conferences and so on and knew the situation and we knew we had to go to Egypt um, when the uprising began um, in Tunisia mm. if it kicked off there. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, all these things were covering the Haiti um, earthquake or or covering, um, you know, people fighting back. It's, you, you, carry, you carry those stories with you, you carry uh, the imprint of people's lives on you and you hope it deepens deepens your understanding of the world and your compassion um, but you also realize that you have to also try and s- strike a balance because it's 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 quite a heavyweight journalism is quite heavyweight mm-hmm. you're uh, living other people's stories and, and their lives and uh, certainly uh, with the refugee situation they're at the hard end of things but you're seeing the beauty in that as well you know and the generosity I mean it's a it's a real um joy <laughs> I say joy but it, it's also also a bit of a a weird curse because you're carrying <laughs> carrying these things with you and yeah. you know uh hopefully you you do the situation's justice it's it's funny you say that because I remember one of the f- first things I mean I I knew you from from the field from seeing you around um and we covered similar events. And um, and I remember at one point on social media seeing you talk about self-care, uh, about something quite, I think it was something quite um, ordinary in a way about, about being a photographer. And I think, was it skincare? Uh, did you write something, share something about that? Uh-huh. And and it was something that never it never crossed my mind. And, and it, how, as you say, we, we carry these quite heavy stories. And then, and because then, I remember covering particularly the housing crisis here, actually. And and then it was retelling, say, family members what I was covering. And people then would go, because, you know, you'd see all these people getting evicted constantly um, and in quite, you know, obviously quite traumatized by the, through the process or, or bec- the process becoming quite traumatic. And then um, people asking me, like, how, how do you deal with that? Are you okay? And that, me never quite thinking anything of it in a sense, of course, you know, yes, you carry those things, but it just... I don't know, for, for me up until that point, until people started asking, are you okay with constantly, continuously you know, being witness, bearing witness to, to, this, mm. um, to this trauma of, of others? It uh, never really quite crossed my mind. And obviously you have probably experienced a lot more. So, well, yeah. exactly. If you think of Grenfell, if you mm. think of the terrorist attacks, you know, who are the first people there, apart from the emergency services? The, the, the journalists. And, and it's really important, that the self-care aspect. Uh, when we came back from... Egypt, uh, a colleague of ours was kidnapped and um, mock executioned and we, we tried to access some support mm. with the idea of him uh, but very quickly 
established that we were traumatised also mm. uh, from what we saw and experienced. Uh, so we went to the DART Centre, um, uh, which helps helps with all that. We've got some very useful resources to be able to spot uh, trauma. They also have kind of best practice uh, uh, to you know encourage journalists to how to uh, cover people in traumatic situations, uh, which is which important. I, I suspect, given that I don't think enough people have enough journalists have that information. No, exactly, exactly. Uh, so that's all been a good learning curve, um, and you know some help with the NUJ. We had a photographer's branch, which was very good at. Um, decompressing people after after certain situations because you do need to do that you know in an environment where people understand it's no good uh, going to counselors that have not got a clue what you've experienced you know i kind of wanted to to ask you what are you reading at the moment and that might not have anything to do with journalism but if it does um why it is that that you're reading that so I've just finished reading The Tattoos of Auschwitz, which is a really oh. interesting book. Um, uh, but now I'm reading uh, Daniel Trilling's book on refugees. Uh, so A fellow very, red hack. Yes, well. <laughs> um, which is brilliant, actually. Uh, I'm just kind of immersing myself in refugee stories. Because, uh, uh, I mean, we, we documented myself and Jason uh, parts of the journey also through Hungary um, so it's all very familiar um, but very powerfully told I recommend it thank you so much that was great thank you was it, was it I am Joanna Ramiro and this was Red Hacks a series of conversations about journalism socialism and being a journalist in a neoliberal world as usual Red Hacks is hosted by the ever excellent politics theory other podcast and if you want to continue listening to episodes like this please consider becoming a supporter on Patreon where you can get access to extended versions of PTO from as little as $3 a month. You can find the Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Paul Theory Other. <laughs>